0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now, let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and very pleased to welcome back to the table, Tim Cockrell. Tim and I will be discussing his recent sermon here from Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. So, Tim, a lot to talk about. Did you get a good night's sleep? I did. Okay, good. We're ready to go. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Tim, you pointed out here on Sunday a common misunderstanding about that last phrase there in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 says uh, that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there are numerous passages throughout the scripture that fall into a similar category, seemingly saying something that could be seen to go against what we believe the scripture actually to be saying. We don't believe the scripture is saying, work out your own salvation. It's all up to you and you just got to do as best you can. That's what we're talking about. So let's, let's talk a little bit Bible study techniques. We all have to deal with this. Some Bible study techniques that you employ when you come to a passage like this and you know, you advanced degrees and so forth, but even you, I know has to really be careful not to fall into some traps. What do you do to make sure that you keep, to what God intended the scripture to me.
1: Absolutely. I I think there's a few simple principles that every one of us can apply, you know, regardless of, of how long we've been a believer, how much we know about the Bible. I think the foundational and fundamental principle is that of context. So many times when we misunderstand a scripture, it's because we've just isolated it from everything that's around it. So even in this passage in Philippians 2, verse 12 says, beloved you know, earlier on in in chapter 1 he's very clear that the philippians he's writing to are believers and so the idea that that he's saying work in order to attain your salvation wouldn't fit with that context. So that would be the first thing is make sure you're looking at the context. Secondly, always interpret the less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. Sometimes there's a passage that it's just odd the way they've written it, or you think he's not saying this, is he? And so you look at what other scriptures have to say about that same topic and you interpret that in light of what already has been clear. And in the same way, we look at the whole scope of what the Bible has to say. We don't just you know, cherry pick, if you will, because sometimes that's where scripture gets distorted. And so let's just take the security of the believer. Can we lose our salvation? You can turn to passages like Hebrews chapter six, that if you just read it in isolation, you might say, oh, that sure sounds like a believer could lose their salvation. And if you believe that, you could come to Philippians two and say, maybe that's what he's talking about. Work hard or else you'll lose your salvation. But when we look at the whole scope of what the Bible teaches about salvation, it becomes very clear that it depends on God's initiative, God's sustaining, and ultimately God's faithfulness to bring us safely home. And then the final thing I would say is have trusted resources that you can turn to, whether that's people in your church that you can ask those questions to or commentaries I would guard us against the danger of just a simple Google search because just because it happens to be one of the first five that show up on a Google search doesn't necessarily mean that it's most dependable. Darn, I've got to change my ways then. Okay. <laughs> no. And and
0: to be fair, I yeah, I do look up things on Google and uh, it's, it's sometimes easy, but you do have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of what uh, your immediate predecessor, Craig Miller, used to say, another thing. He said... Uh, If you come up with something that nobody has thought of by reading scripture, you might want to just check yourself before you go preaching it. That's some good counsel right there. (laughs) Well, Tim, I appreciated how you broke down the concept of our salvation into those three uh, related, interconnected components. You talked about justification, and certainly when you come to salvation, there's a point at which we have repented and entered into eternity with Christ, sanctification, that ongoing process that all believers are involved in right now, and then glorification, that final salvation. So we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Mm -hmm. You pointed out it's helpful to a middle-aged guy like me. Yeah. And I have crossed into middle age a long time ago, but I think it's also something we really need to be focusing on with our children. There can be a focus in our church and others of really focusing. Okay. Did they say a prayer or, Mm -hmm. or or it really, it kind of curdles my stomach sometimes when I said, well, I said the prayer. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is all about. Is it?
1: No, I mean, certainly it's important to be declaring the gospel and we have to have a starting point where we are transferring our trust and placing our faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. But if we begin to view that as a finish line, then we've really misunderstood what the Christian life is all about. And I think that's why sometimes you end up having people view salvation almost as a a fire insurance or as a, a ticket into heaven that then they end up living however they want to here on earth. And so for each of us individually as well as for you know children that God's entrusted to our care or for the next generation that we're training up, what we really want to help them to understand is that this new identity that we have comes with new responsibilities, that we are to have a level of family resemblance that because we love Jesus, it changes the way that we're making these decisions. And there's such a huge difference between obedience that's based out of guilt or fear, or shame, and obedience that's built, that's flowing out of gratitude for God's grace. And that would be one of my kind of heart's passions is that we as believers develop a grace-based obedience. Not because we're afraid God's going to get mad at us, not because we're afraid he's going to shake his head in disgust and disappointment but because we know we are already loved and accepted and we long to please him because we love him i think when we begin to understand that it changes the way we view the process that paul's going to describe not only here in chapter 2 but then in chapter 3 of, of talking about pressing hold uh, to to take hold of uh, pressing ahead to take hold of the goal for which christ has called us and so
0: when we are sitting uh, in your office or somewhere here on the church grounds and we're talking with prospective new members who are wanting to join the church, one of the things I'm always listening for is not only that this is, I I, I came uh, to know Christ. He, he, he drew me to him and I came to know Christ on a certain date or a there? Mm-hmm. by the way, I don't have that date. I, I don't have that blessing of remembering exactly when it was, but I know that, that I came to Christ. But we also want to hear that, but what has Christ been doing in your life? Mm -hmm. And what's he doing right now? And that's something that I always want to hear in a a salvation
1: testimony. Absolutely, because we need to be continuing to press forward, not just that that's the evidence of our faith, but it's honoring to God. And so if someone's going to be joining our church, we'd want to see not just evidence of past faith, but the present outworking of that faith. And then looking forward to that glorious hope that we have
0: in Christ Jesus at the end. Absolutely. Okay, so we have a tension here, and you alluded to it here just a moment ago. We have a tension here in verses 12 and 13 in which we are to, Paul says, as I said before, work out our own salvation, for it is God who works in you. And so he's quick to point out, it's not you who are doing it, but it's God who's working in and through you. Okay, so let's get really practical. I want Tim Cockrell, a formula, to tell me how to do that and keep that tension where it should be.
1: Help me out. Well, you're gonna get disappointed. because uh, I knew you were gonna say that. I'm I'm still working on that as well. I think there's a few priorities that we can remember. The first one, Paul's already been very explicit on, and that is just humility. That as soon as we begin to think, "I'm doing pretty good at this," I'm better than most around me. I'm pretty far along in the spiritual walk. There ought to Attention be just snapped. I think there ought to be <laughs> this like warning light that starts flashing in our mind because that's the heart of a Pharisee. And most of the time, when we begin to have that kind of self-righteous feeling, it's because we've begun to focus more on the external than the internal. Because we know our heart, we know how twisted and depraved it is. How many times we're prone to selfishness and pride and and unkindness and things that we think or the things that we do. And so if we're rooted in a level of humility that says, my only hope is that Christ is at work in me, then we are properly rooted in dependence on him, such that our prayer life is naturally going to flow from that, God, I can't, but you can. We're going to be constantly reminding ourselves and amazed by the message of the gospel, such that we are rooted in the truth that our standing doesn't depend on what we do, but also motivated by the fact that if Christ suffered and sacrificed, was selfless and humble the way he was, what right do I have to say I ought to get to be exempt in this case? And so then as we think about God working in us, God has given us certain means of grace, if you want to call it that. It sounds kind of technical, but he's given us a path by which we walk. We talked about it on Sunday. Christian community is one of those ways. Being married will keep you humble. It'll it'll help you be reminded of, hey, I'm a selfish person, and that flows out in ways that I'd really rather ignore. But the, it's constantly drawing us back to that God has given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's called us to lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for the church. And that when we face those things, they're formative. So Christian community is one of those ways. Obviously, God's word is the way by which we know him and and understand his will. Prayer is a key aspect of that. But then I would say even just the discipline of, of putting off and putting on, of acknowledging this is a sinful pattern that doesn't fit my identity and it needs to be set aside. And that's going to require sometimes even radical action complete honesty in the context of community. And then there's a progressive obedience that says, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm going to do it progressively as I seek to become more and more like Christ. So not much of a formula there, but hopefully that has a few kind of priorities that we all can keep in mind as we're seeking to put this into practice. Very disappointing that you didn't give me my formula, but no, g- g- great stuff. And
0: I think too, of what, uh, what the writer of Hebrews says about that, those weights, and the sin that so easily besets mm-hmm. us. But those weights that are not necessarily sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think of a of a message that I heard a year ago, J- the first Sunday in January. It was by one of our elders here, Thad Friends. Mm-hmm. And Thad shared, a, and I forget, I, Thad, I can't remember what you said, but I knew it had an impact. And the whole thought was, it convicted me of the need to, pu- to pull off Facebook off of my phone. Mm. I was spending way too much time. Now... I mastered that late in the year, so I put it back on <laughs> just recently. I had to take it off again because I was just spinning. So, again, getting rid of those, what you're talking about, mm-hmm. those sin areas, but also those those areas that may lead you down into temptation. I just don't need that. So it's off my phone right now. Mm. <sighs> we'll see if I can do it without it. Okay, so, Tim, let's, let's talk a little bit about one more thing. I remember back over a year ago, right about that time I was talking about that sermon from Thad. You came and you shared, and one thing I remember about you, you kept saying, and it stuck in my mind, and I'd heard it before, but it was the whole idea, we need to keep
1: preaching the gospel to ourselves, remembering from whence we've come. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that just briefly. Yeah, well, I think we all struggle with gospel amnesia. You know, we we know the gospel, we've heard it, we share it with other people, but that we don't often allow its truths to influence the way we live every day. And I think that's essentially what Paul's talking about here when he says, work out your salvation, is let these truths transform the way that you think, the decisions you make, the way that you relate to other people, the way you resolve conflict, the way you spend your money, the way you approach human sexuality, that as we preach the gospel to ourselves, we are humbled, we are amazed, we are properly motivated, and ultimately we're continuing to press forward with the right heart and the right priorities. So
0: I was uh, hearing what you said here the other day about uh, grumbling. And I was really glad that you brought this up because this was something that I was reading as I was reading, preparing for the sermon myself, preparing to hear what you're going to say. The idea came to me, okay, first of all, why is he using this as an illustration, a practical illustration? Uh, I'm guessing that there was some grumbling going on, and I'm guessing that Epaphroditus had uh, kind of communicated, hey, there's there's some problems here, and but Paul... Also, no doubt, could have gone to some bigger issues. And he does deal with some issues on through the book, but he talks about something that is really endemic to everybody. We all have this issue. Uh, ta- let's talk a little bit more about that. That just nobody, whether you're an elder in the church or just became a Christian,
1: we're all subject to this. Absolutely. And I say subject, we don't need to be subject to it, but. Right. We struggle with it. And, and I think that's why he brings it out as if he had chosen something like adultery, you know, it'd be easy for Not somebody, me. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I get a pass on this one, but I also think the reason he chooses it is because this falls into the category of what I would often call respectable sins. You know, we can excuse and ignore and minimize it. And we begin to view grumbling and complaining and disputing with one another as more of a minor flaw than a major issue. But when we begin to think about when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they began to grumble against God and against Moses and the way that that led to a level of rebellion, God took that incredibly seriously. And I think it just reminds us that the way we view sin isn't always the way God views sin. And this heart of selfishness and pride that says, God, I think I know better than you do what I need in my life. I think I have a better plan or a better timetable as to what ought to happen than you do. We're really just shaking our fist in God's face, but we view it as, I'm just venting. You know, I just need to get something off my chest. But really what we're doing is expressing disbelief and disobedience toward God. And that's why Paul brings this to the surface. And Jesus does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. But he takes some of the big ones. You know, you've heard it said, "Don't commit adultery." But if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you know, you've you've heard it said that you are not to uh, steal, but that as you begin to covet something, that you're guilty of the same root of that. Not murder, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you have that same root. And so, I think that's what Paul's doing us, doing for us, is to press us into the heart motivations that lead us to some of these actions.
0: And those, uh, grumbling is one of those that just, it it leads into a self-centeredness. It leads into a lack of reliance on God. And then at that point, then maybe I can't say, not me, about the adultery or Mm -hmm. about the other things because it leads right there to our own flesh. Absolutely. I can't read verses 15 and 16 without thinking of the picture that that we've all heard about and we've all seen some of us teach taught on about being ambassadors for our King in a foreign land. We should be different from the natives who live here in, in the community or in the United States or in this world in general. And we should be celebrating. We should be emphasizing that difference that, that only the spirit
1: of God can bring about in, in us. That's a pretty good picture. Don't you think it is? And I, one of the things I think is really important to highlight is that we don't do this just individualistically. Many times when we think about being an ambassador, I think that means, we imagine it primarily means we need to be good people, we need to be loving, we need to have integrity, all those things are true. But what Paul has really been pointing them to here in Philippians 2 is the most powerful witness you have to the world is when people who are different and sinful and selfish begin to operate in community with one another in completely unnatural ways that they begin to care for the needs of others more than their own, that they don't care who gets the credit for an accomplishment because ultimately they're serving Christ where even when things are, are difficult or frustrating, they're not giving way to grumbling and disputing, but rather they're they're pressing in to the example of Christ. And so I think that's a challenge for us as believers that they will know that we are believers by the way we love one another. And so it's not enough just to have orthodox doctrine or even personal integrity. We need to have right relationships with one another. And let's be honest, many times that's one of the hardest things for us to do. I want to go back to this
0: idea of grumbling. Something else uh, comes to mind. It's Grumbling is a sin, because it's a focus on us, it's, it's a, dis, uh, a dissonance between what God has provided and what we want. But you mentioned the other day there is, I don't, I'm not going to call that a holy grumbling, but there is a way to express those disappointments, those frustrations. You called it lamentations, or lamenting, mm-hmm. and we've got a whole book dedicated to it, and a whole prophet really mm-hmm. dedicated to it, if you want to talk about Jeremiah Talk to us, what is lamenting in a godly,
1: God-honoring way? Yeah, it's a good question and one that doesn't have the, the neatly defined edges that we might like it to, but I think there's a few things we can observe in Scripture. You know, David, as you read some of David's Psalms, he didn't hesitate to express authentically and openly the things he was struggling with. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me Forever? My enemies seem to be victorious while I'm living in faithfulness to you and, and suffering because of it. I think at the root of it, we have to understand that we live in a broken world and that as we deal with the the sharp edges of that brokenness, it's going to inflict discomfort and pain and frustration even at times. And by the way,
0: is that is that what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 8? The world is groaning? Is the world lamenting?
1: Absolutely, you know, but I think then Paul orients us there in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so there's this tension that, yes, we are suffering, but we have to view that suffering in the proper context. And so some of the questions that that were outlined there on Sunday, and we had to go through it relatively quickly because it's such a, a rich passage, but I think the heart of lament is a heart of faith rather than a heart of unbelief that we're crying out to God because we believe that he is in control. So you can see in many of David's Psalms, he's going to cry out, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And he's going to process through this out loud. You know, he's an out loud processor, if you will. But he always arrives at the end of the passage with, but I will put my hope in you. But I know that you will be faithful. And that there is a place for us to be able to Cry out to God in, in burden and in brokenness, and then root ourselves in truth to bring it back to a heart of faith rather than a heart of disbelief, a heart of humility rather than a heart of, of arrogance that says, How dare you, God? This isn't fair. And I think when we keep that in proper perspective, it's okay to say, God, I'm tired. I'm weary, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm disappointed that this ha- situation wasn't handled the way that it should be. But I trust that even in this brokenness, you are going to make something beautiful. And, and so it's placing our heart in his hands and saying, God, help me to see with your eyes, to respond with your heart, and to be like you even through these difficult things. And there
0: we've come around full
1: circle to how we started when we consider
0: our the fact that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved—that final glorification, that exaltation that Christ
1: experienced—and
0: mm-hmm. he is he is sessioning, uh, he is there with God at God's right hand. He's enjoying the blessing of being in God's presence. But that's the picture of where we will be, Absolutely. and knowing, have, having the picture of the right, uh, the right ending, the correct ending, the true ending mm-hmm. in mind. Great. Next up, we come to the final twelve verses there in, in chapter two. We we drop in on Paul's future plans for the church, some things he's, he's envisioning uh, about sending some people and so forth. At, at first glance, Tim, one might suggest that there isn't much to talk about here, but I'm
1: guessing dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah, Paul's definitely very intentional. What might look like just kind of a travel dialogue is really what Paul's doing here is, what began back in 127, walk worthy of the gospel, has then been illustrated and explained as to how they then are to live it out. And he gives Christ as the perfect example of that. But he's now going to give two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as a personal example of that. Here are men that ought to be honored, he describes, as those role models, those influencers. And so one of the things we're going to talk about on Sunday is, who are those people in your life who have poured into your life, who have modeled Christ-likeness of an other-centeredness, a humility, and then challenge us to say, who are we then pouring into? How do we honor those who have poured into us, and how do we continue that legacy of, of pouring into others? Very practical stuff. Tim Cockrell,
0: thanks. We have been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes from way back on demand by visiting gracecederville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at graceCedarville.org. That's contact at gracecederville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's word as we finish up in Philippians chapter two. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. and thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecederville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's word.